God is a God of life. And that is God is the source of life. He is the life giver. And so all the way back in creation, God created life to fill the earth. He makes birds to fill the sky. He makes creatures to fill the ocean, to walk on the land. All of creation teems with life. And God, the life giver, then brings forth life. And he looks at it all and he says what? It's very good. It's very good. He creates life and he rejoiced in that life. God is the life giver and he takes pleasure in living, breathing creation. But then after God created all of creation, all living things, short of man, he then said, let us make man in our image. And so he forms man from the dust of the earth. And what does the Bible say? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that man became a living creature. Job said in Job chapter 12, verse 10, in his hand, that is in God's hand, is the life of every living thing and the breath of mankind. God is the life giver. God is the life sustainer. He is the source of life. He is the only self-sufficient, self-existent one. In him flows life. Mankind, however, was different from the rest of creation in that men and women were made to reflect the likeness and the image of God on earth. And so he says, let us make man in our likeness and image. That is, as we learned a few weeks ago, mankind was made to represent the dominion of God. It is delegated authority to have dominion over the earth, over all of creation. And mankind was created to reflect his care over all of creation as well. We're made to be stewards, stewards of God's living, breathing creation. Well, God himself sustains that life. So as God's image bearers in the crown of his creation, God set apart and sanctified human life. Life is God-given, life is precious, life is to be valued, life is to be protected. Genesis 9.6, the Lord says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Mankind are image bearers, and therefore the life of mankind is precious, set apart from all the rest of creation. That life is so precious that God not only created it, but he protected it and insisted that his people also protect that life. It should come as no surprise then that we who are made in the image of God are called to be stewards of that life, and we should share God's view of life. We should regard all human life as precious and worthy of protection. This, sadly, however, has not been the history of mankind. It has not been the history of mankind. Shortly after sin entered the world, what is the, what some of the first evidence of sin? Murder. Cain kills his brother Abel, inflamed with jealousy, commits the world's first murder, and then we get a glimpse. We understand that when sin enters the world, death comes with sin. And from that moment, it became very clear that mankind's fallen nature would result in a failure to value life as God values life. It would instead plunge the entire human race headlong into a culture of death. And the history of mankind bears this out. As man multiplied on earth, sin multiplied as well. So to the point where God in Genesis 6 says, all the earth is filled with violence. And so he brings forth the judgment of the flood. He says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. This is the fallen nature of man. Sin had not only brought death, but sin had brought with it a fascination with death, a drive towards death. It really brought about a culture of death. 
In such a context, we ask, you know, who would carry forth then God's design for the protection of life? Who would act as the image bearers of God? Who would act as the image and likeness of the God of life? Who would speak light into darkness and who would speak life into a culture of death? Well, God would call individuals, so he calls Noah. He warns Noah in Genesis 6 about the taking of life. He then calls Abraham, tells him that he's going to make him a great nation. Through the multiplication of life, you're going to be a father of many nations. Eventually, he would call an entire people group, that's the Jews, as his representatives on earth. He would make Israel his chosen nation. He would call them to shine as lights in the midst of darkness and to value life while death was celebrated all around them. That's no overstatement, by the way. When he redeemed his people from Israel, he, uh, from Egypt, he had to tell the Jews, you shall not murder. And he had to tell them when he brought them out of Egypt, don't be like all the nations around you. Leviticus 18.2, he says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Why does God say this? Because he's bringing out a people that will be his, that were to be image bearers, who were to value life, and all around them was a culture of death, whether it be in Egypt or whether it be in Canaan. Don't be like the ones I'm taking you out of. Don't be like the ones I'm bringing you into. You have to be different. Shockingly, shockingly, in Leviticus 18, God shows his people, in part, what it would mean to not be like Egypt and to not be like Canaan, to be those image bearers. He says in Leviticus 18.21, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. As part of God's instruction to his people who were to be a holy nation in the midst of perverse nations, he actually had to instruct his people to not perform child sacrifice. Molech was the god of the underworld. The pagan nations around Israel had ritualized infanticide. You want to kill your children and justify it, we'll just do it in the name of religion. And that's what they did. They justified killing their own babies by doing it in the name of worship, and they offered to a god named Molech. God actually has to say to his people, don't do that. Actually has to tell them, don't sacrifice your children. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see this kind of child sacrifice as kind of the line of demarcation signaling that a culture had become really intolerably depraved. When a culture gets to the point where it's willing to sacrifice its children, that's that point where really all that's left is judgment. A culture does not descend to that point of a willingness to kill the most helpless among them without first plowing through a host of other moral guardrails. The level of callousness and insensitivity which allows a society to create such a culture of death could not be arrived at unless that culture first tolerated all sorts of other lesser evils. In other words, when a culture gets to the point where it collectively approves of the killing of babies, it's a sign that it's thoroughly, if not irretrievably, corrupt. We know that the Lord shares this opinion because it was a descent into the killing of babies that led him to drive out the Canaanite peoples from the promised land. That's what led him to drive out the pagan nations and to bring in his own people. We know that because as the Lord prepared his people to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 12, he said this, You shall not worship, I'm sorry, yeah, no, that was right. You shall not worship the Lord your God the way the nations serve their gods, For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. 
for they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God speaking, saying they've even gone to this incomprehensible length of sacrificing their children. They did it in the name of worship, sure, but God says, you're not going to do this. You're not going to be like them. Men and women disposing of their unwanted babies in the name of their God. God says that's abominable. That's an abomination, which means that those nations are fit for judgment. How fitting it is to talk about the value of life and be distracted by babies. (laughs) God's people, Israel, were to possess the land and to shine as lights in the midst of darkness. They were to speak life into a culture of death. They were to obey the command, you shall not murder. They were to exemplify the sanctity of life. They were to show what it was to be the children of the God who is the God of life. They were to be a people who viewed life as precious and sanctified. Their children would not be sacrificed. They would not be burned. They would not be abandoned. Instead, Israel was to image forth God's love for life. At least that's what they were supposed to do. As the centuries went on, Israel did not obey God. Shockingly, shockingly. They did become like Egypt, and they did become like Canaan. They did become like the surrounding nations. Uh, They did sacrifice the culture of life in favor of the culture of death, and they too began to commit the unspeakable atrocity of sacrificing their own children. As God, through the prophet Ezekiel, read his charges against his rebellious people, he said this in Ezekiel 16, And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had born to me, And these you sacrificed to them, to those false gods, to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And God takes ownership of these babies, takes ownership of these children, and says, you bore these to me, and you've sacrificed my children. Israel had embraced the culture of death. Darkness overtook the light, and God was rejected, and death was glorified. Shockingly, this seems to be the bent of mankind. Fallen mankind loves death. Fallen mankind, left to his own devices, creates a culture of death. The sad fact is, ever since sin entered the picture, human societies have found ingenious ways to satisfy their own lusts, to free themselves from responsibility, to continue in sin without consequence. Or so they think. And sadly, history has proven that the victims of such a society are always the weakest among us. They're always the most vulnerable. Children are sacrificed so that sin can be satisfied. Consequently, the culture of death continually prevails. As George Grant in his book, Third Time Around, A History of the Pro-Life Movement from the First Century to the Present says, Virtually every culture in antiquity was stained with the blood of innocent children. Unwanted infants in ancient Rome were abandoned outside the city walls to die from exposure to the elements, or from the attacks of wild foraging beasts. Greeks often gave their pregnant women harsh doses of herbal or medicinal abortifacients. Persians developed highly sophisticated surgical curette procedures. Chinese women tied heavy ropes around their waist so excruciatingly tight that they either aborted or passed into unconsciousness. Ancient Hindus and Arabs concocted chemical pessaries, abortifacients that were pushed or pumped directly into the womb through the birth canal. Primitive Canaanites threw their children onto great flaming pyres as a sacrifice to their god Molech. Polynesians subjected their pregnant women to onerous torture, their abdomens beaten with large stones or hot coals heaped upon their bodies. 
Japanese women straddled boiling cauldrons of parasitical brews. Egyptians disposed of their unwanted children by disemboweling and dismembering them shortly after birth. Sounds familiar. Their collagen was then ritually harvested for the manufacture of cosmetic creams. And you say, well, that's just the superstitious. That's just the uneducated in those societies uh, who would uh, do such things. Not so. George Grant continues, None of the great minds of the ancient world, from Plato and Aristotle to Seneca and Quintilian, from Pythagoras and Aristophanes to Livy and Cicero, from Herodotus to Plutarch and Euripides, none of these disparaged child-killing in any way. In fact, most of them actually recommended it. They callously discussed its various methods and procedures. They casually debated its sundry legal ramifications. They blithely tossed lives like dice. And we can relate to that because it seems that those who claim to be the most enlightened and the most educated in our culture seem to be those who are most willing to promote the disposal of human life, whether it be through abortion or whether it be through assisted dying. Our culture is no more advanced or enlightened than these ancient cultures. We've embraced a culture of death. In 2020, it's reported that Canada performed 74,000 abortions. 74,000 abortions, 21,000 of those happening in our province. The culture of death marches on. There is good news this morning. 2,000 years ago, the perfect image of God, the perfect life bringer, entered into this world. Jesus Christ, according to John, came as both the light and life of men. Jesus possessed the same life-giving, life-loving, and life-sustaining divine attributes as the Father. As his disciples, products of their culture, refused to allow children to come to Jesus, what did Jesus say? Let the little children come. Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. That divine love for children. That divine love for babies. Presence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came as the resurrection and the life. He would create a people made new through that life, and they were to share his love for life. Through salvation, Jesus would make a people who counted life as precious, a people who saw life as sacred, a people who shone like lights in the midst of darkness, a people who promoted life in the midst of a culture of death. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what he did. The church was born. The church was born into a culture of death. God's love for life through the church was projected upon that culture on a grand scale. And so early on, we begin to see the influence of the, of the church upon such cultures. The collective Christian conscience would eventually see believers push back against the culture of death. Not politically at first, because the church had no political power, had no political authority or influence. But Christians would visit those exposure walls in Rome, where Roman families would just leave their babies there to leave them exposed to the elements to die. Christians would go to those walls and they would rescue those children and they would nurse them. They would adopt them. They'd raise them for God's glory. Believers in Corinth, you know how sexually perverse Corinth was, would extend rare love and mercy and refuge to those temple prostitutes who would find themselves pregnant. They'd provide the love and stability which those women needed so that they could feel confident to actually bring their children into the world. 
beyond the first century, as the church grew and gained some political influence, it used that influence to turn back the barbaric practices of abortion and infanticide and exposure and abandonment. When the church was officially recognized legally in the 300s, Shortly after that, in 374 A.D., as a direct result of Christian preaching, Emperor Valentinian criminalized abortion and infanticide and exposure and abandonment. He said, all parents must support their children conceived. Those who brutalize or abandon them should be subject to the full penalty prescribed by law. That was a direct result of the influence of the church. As Christians continued to project God's love of life and hatred of death into societies throughout the centuries, things like abortion and infanticide and exposure and abandonment came to be seen for what they were, the barbaric glorification of a culture of death and the victimization of the weakest among us. It was the snuffing out of a precious life, a precious life made in the image of God. Sadly, however, Christian influence has waned, hasn't it? As promising as things looked, as if the culture of life would march on and the culture of death would be beat into submission, that's not what has happened. So that here in 2023 in the West, we can say that the church is a uh, culture of life firmly ensconced in a greater culture of death. But you and I stand in the tradition of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has given the mandate to stand as beacons of light, beacons of light and to push back against the darkness Christians are those who love those who are hated and embrace those who are rejected. We are those who are to comfort those who are disturbed and provide for those who are destitute. We are those who are called to rescue those who are victimized. That's the character of Christ. We are those who seek to project the love and compassion of Christ into this world. This means that as we consider the sanctity of life this morning, we're not simply those who glom onto a political movement. We're not simply those who look at pro-life as a cause or give ourselves to protest. Instead, we are those who, with the love of Christ, are to come alongside those who are suffering. As we consider the pro-life movement or the importance of a crisis pregnancy center this morning, we remember that being pro-life means being pro-people. It's not just, this is not just ideology. This is not, this is not just a debate to be won. This is not just a matter of laws to be passed. It means more than advocating for change in law or lobbying for political victories. This means a willingness to give time and treasure and love and compassion and mercy to the mothers and to the children directly involved. It even means showing love and mercy and compassion to others when they find themselves in a difficult situation as a result of their own sin. It's God who loved us while we were yet sinners, according to Romans 5.8. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well who had had five husbands and was living with a man that was still not her husband, what did he do? He cared for her soul. He helped her see her need for eternal life, showed her how her emptiness had led her to try to find fulfillment in other disappointing places. In the same way, we learn to show that same Christ-like love to see that even the greatest sinner is also a sufferer. Even the greatest sinner is also a sufferer who needs the love and compassion of Jesus. And Jesus has called us to be the ones to show it. And so in conclusion, the church has a mandate. The church has a mandate. The church has a mandate to stand for life. To love and value life as precious. To see every human being as being made in the image of God and therefore precious.
we have a mandate to stand for the sanctity of life. The church has a mandate to give and sacrifice in tangible ways in order to rescue those who are at risk of being victimized by the surrounding culture of death. The church also has a mandate to show love and mercy and compassion towards unbelievers who may be suffering as a result of their own sin. This is a far cry from this view of the church as the ones who are holier than thou, standing in judgment of all those people out there. The church has a mandate to deliberately stand in contrast to the culture around it. It has a mandate to be salt, which slows cultural decay, and light, which drives away darkness. The church has a mandate to show empathy towards women who, for one reason or another, have come to believe that the only way forward is for them to abort their baby. The church even has a mandate to show love and mercy toward those women who have succumbed to the culture of death and have actually given their children over to it. In other words, the church has a mandate to live as men and women made in the image of God and remade in the image of Christ, loving and celebrating and protecting and supporting life while showing mercy and compassion toward those ensnared by the culture of death. Well, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you will help us as the church to be the church. Help us to recognize the simplicity of your design for the church to show the love of Christ into the world. Although we may have opportunities to influence a culture politically, we may have an uh, opportunity to influence via policy, primarily we know that you've called us simply to be the church, to project the love and compassion and mercy of Christ into the world. Pray you'd help us to be that church. Pray that you'd help us to have a willingness to get involved in lives, to sacrifice in tangible ways, We pray that you would help us, Lord, to see Calvary develop a culture or we have a willingness to come alongside those who have become victims of the culture of death. I pray you would help us to uh, have a commitment uh, even to sacrifice personally in tangible ways. Um, And Lord, we pray that you just use us to support and to love uh, women uh, who for one reason or another have come to a place where they're questioning whether or not they should bring their child into the world. Help us, driven by your love for life, to show love and care and compassion and mercy to to such women. And Lord, we just pray that you'd bless and uh, in some small way use us as salt to slow cultural decay. Use us as those who um, see your love projected upon the culture. Use us, and we pray that uh, through ministry, to women and to their children, that you would bring some women to know you as Savior and Lord. We pray that through this ministry we would not lose sight of the gospel and that we would show the love of Christ and communicate well that the place to find true fulfillment, the place to find true peace is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you'll help us to snatch some out from the culture of death and to see them translated into the kingdom of life. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray your blessing upon this uh, ministry, the Milo Pregnancy Center. We pray that you provide for their needs financially, tangibly, but also uh, with genuine believers uh, who want to jump in and be involved and to come alongside the lives of women, showing them the love of Christ. Lord, we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.